welcome to episode 19 of the Trans Questioning Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Z. So, it's been a hot minute. I apologize for the delay, the the absence. I guess it was only a week. But, so, uh, we'll start with that. How are you? <laughs> so, the reason why I skipped a week was that the week when this episode was supposed to come out was my finals week. So I was having a rough time of it vis-a-vis basically everything. I've got, I had a bunch of finals and papers that I needed to write over that weekend. I have my roommates who are planning to move out and I was still unsure if I was staying in this house where I am now or moving to somewhere else. And I'm still kind of a little bit in in the air about that. Uh, but yeah, and then I'm going to Italy in July, which is a big deal. And there's a lot of logistical things there. And there's money <laughs> as an issue, which is just uh, money sucks. Capitalism's awful, you know? Until I become successful and then I'll love capitalism. So I've got a bunch of different things that I want to catch all up on. And looking at the list, it's kind of amazing to me that I didn't do this sooner. It feels like a lot of this stuff was a thousand years ago. And so the fact that it was only like two weeks is really just says a lot about how fucking crazy everything has been the last two weeks. So let's see. First of all, the biggest and best news of the whole period that I was not on, the best thing to happen this month, or maybe it was last month. I'm pretty sure it was this month. Either way, the best thing to happen this year so far is that Janelle Monet released a new album. It's called Dirty Computer, and it's real good. I've been a fan of Janelle, Janelle Monet for a, uh, three or four years now, I guess. Because it would have been, I remember specifically whenever I found her previous album, and that would have been when my friend was still living in Texas. So yeah, four, four or five years at least, which is wild to me. But anyway, yeah, she's amazing. She, um, I, I've made the observation recently that like there's a lot of video games that are trying to do this sort of, um, cyborgs slash androids as a metaphor for race thing and just really not being very good at it while here's this musician doing it basically effortlessly. I don't want to say effortlessly because she puts a lot of work into it, but her her style and her approach just like really does a great job of of typifying that whole thing. I guess I should say that Janelle Monet is a a uh, pansexual android uh, person of color who is on the run from an oppressive cyborg regime and she's preaching a message of uh, sexual liberation to a bunch of other uh, wonderful robot people. Uh, her whole thing is is just just wonderful. I feel like some years down the line, we're going to be looking at her the same way we look at Prince and David Bowie today. Anyway, um, that album is is really good. There's a handful of songs on there that I just can't get out of my brain. 
and it's just it's a good time. So that's my that's my media wreck of the day. Go listen to Janelle Monae. She's a good album person <laughs> musician. <laughs> oh boy. Uh so part of the other reason why I wanted to delay the last episode is that this podcast is on a two-week timer, uh, or it comes out every two weeks. And then my YouTube show, I also do every two weeks. And I rather foolishly uh, switched to two weeks on this show at the same time uh, that I did a, a, an episode of my YouTube show. So now... Uh, <laughs> I have my YouTube show and this podcast coming out on the same week. So I delayed it so that they can be kind of off off week things just so that I'm not scrambling to do both things at the same time. So there is that logistical bit of business. But actually, the big news, uh, the first bit of big news of the last few weeks was that so last December, I made a short film called In the Eye which was about a woman making a cup of coffee and cleaning her kitchen while she does so. And it's eight minutes long, eight or nine, and almost nothing happens. And um, I was really, really happy with it. Um, So the Student Film Festival was uh, a few weeks ago. And on a lark, I submitted it. I kind of... I have a bad habit with any of the films that I make where... Once they're done, I am immediately dissatisfied with them and I kind of just throw them in the trash. And I was doing that with this one, but I am sort of proud of of that. So I I just knew that I needed to do a little bit more work on it. And so instead of just not doing that work, I actually did it and made it a little bit better. And then I submitted it and it um, it went over really well on the day. Uh, I got best director. And the uh, the my actress got best actress. It was just really cool. Um, a lot of people really liked it. So the actual thing that the short film is about is sexual assault and kind of the Me Too movement. The only words that are spoken are in voiceover, and they're taken directly from the transcripts of uh, uh, Dylan Farrow talking about her molestation at the hands of Woody Allen and the anonymous accuser of Louis CK. So yeah, there's a bit of, there's a bit of baggage there. Um, uh, so I've been told by uh, in the handful of times when I've screened it publicly, there's a lot of people who are, baffled by it because the whole point of it visually was that nothing happens. I mean, it's literally just a woman in the kitchen. She starts making a cup of a pot of coffee. And then while waiting for it to brew, she cleans her kitchen. And then you can probably guess where the film ends. So yeah. And it's eight minutes of that. And it's mostly silent. The whole point of that film is that I feel like American cinema especially, but just popular cinema in general, is very focused on narrative, obviously, but also just generally not letting the audience question the reality of what they're seeing. And so there's there's a, a flow and a, a, a 
really just a desperate desire to make sure the, the viewer never gets bored. And this film is scientifically engineered to be boring. And there are a lot of people, uh, specifically, when I screened it for the class that I made it for, there were a couple, there was one person who spoke up afterwards, like it was, we, we, we screen our films and then everybody gives their comments. So I screened mine and then one person started talking and was like, yeah, so I thought it was really boring. So I was nodding my head, like smiling and they're like, no, no, no. I, I thought it was really boring. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like nodding my head and smiling. And they're like, no, I don't think you get it. Like it was it was boring. And finally, I was like, yeah, that's the point. (laughs) And we then had a whole discussion about like when you're making a story about anything like remotely serious regarding tragic events in a person's life, but especially something like molestation or assault or rape, it's easy to turn it into like a strict narrative where it follows the rules of, of narrative and you know the the bad thing happens and then the main character has their whole you know dealing with it and then they get their revenge somehow or they have their moment of catharsis and they get over it right they move on but the fact is that nobody ever really moves on even if they do get justice and most people don't get justice And you as a viewer, when you watch a film that's about some kind of assault, it's like, you know, all of those things happen. And then at the end, there's that sort of catharsis. And you as a viewer sort of left feeling like, you know, she she made it through. What a what a good story. You know, it was sad that it happened to her. But gosh, dang it. She pulled through. And that means so can everybody else. I don't have to change my behaviors at all. And it just leaves you the, the, the narrative catharsis in general leaves you feeling like you've wrapped it all up and solved the problem somehow. This is something I've been thinking a lot about lately because it's an issue. It feels like it's had sort of a negative effect on on the world today maybe a little bit i don't know maybe maybe i'm over inflating the importance of that but anyway the point of this short film was to try to take seriously the effects of sexual assault and abuse on a person's mind in, in their daily life and some people were just like yawning the whole time but a handful of people really dug it and that was i was honestly what i was expecting i wasn't expecting to get any kind of award i wasn't expecting anybody to let to enjoy the experience because it's intentionally going against a lot of the basic rules of conventional filmmaking and this is a student film festival so everybody very much is following the rules right so yeah uh it was it was surprising the people that I was there with were shocked by it and sort of looked at me and were like, I can't believe you made that. That was so good, which was nice to hear. Uh, afterwards, walking out, somebody came up to me and she was sort of like, not crying, but she was emotional. 
And she said, like, my mom was in the in the uh, audience and she had to leave after that because, you know, she went through something similar and it had a big effect on her, which I don't know if that was a compliment. I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I if it, she made it seem like a compliment, but it made me feel like I probably should have put a trigger warning in front of my thing, which is wild to me because. Well, it's only just talking about it. But that's the thing is that it's almost like paradoxically more effective when you don't see anything. And it's just like a mundane, a mundane setting recounting events that actually happened. And you're left to imagine, you know, what what happened and how it happened, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, she came up to me afterwards and she was she was real, real conflicted um, and you know, she she told me like I was moved by it, and uh, we we talked a little bit about it. She was in a hurry, but you know, she she uh, uh, said some things, and I kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, you know, I, it's it's a shitty world, and you know, at least we can make art, and I don't know if I can ever do anything to help fix the world that we're in but i'm glad that this helped you in some way and then we hugged and it was it was nice um there was generally a lot of crying that day because i had found out that i had won an award a writing award for an essay that i wrote which i'd submitted it to like january and completely forgot about and it uh yeah i i it won and I'm waiting for the check for that right now. But that was like, I guess this gets into the other thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit, which I should probably hold off on, but this is just a good transition. So one of the things that I've been trying to internalize as I approach the end of my semester and approach, you know, finally graduating from university and trying to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. At the same time, you know, really trying to do the podcast thing and the YouTube thing and turn that into some kind of career. There's this imposter syndrome. Everybody is familiar with imposter syndrome, right? But it's not... (sighs) Imposter syndrome, obviously, like... Even people who are super successful suffer from it. And you are always surprised because super talented people in your life, you look at them and it's like, wow, you did this with so little effort. And it's then they turn around and say, like, no, I put a lot of effort into this. This was not an easy thing. And it's just because we can't see the process, you know, we see the finished product and we don't get to see the many iterations that it went through before it reached its final state. So I don't think you necessarily ever get over imposter syndrome, but I do think that there are ways that one can deal with it better. And that's something that I've been trying to think about in my own life, where I've always had a hard time accepting compliments and I've always been relatively good at the things that I really put my my mind to and and put effort in, which I think just says that that's true of probably most people. And so I, I, I try always to be humble and I 
think that that's probably a good thing. I think everybody should try to be as humble as possible, even if they're successful. But I think there's a point at which humbleness turns to self-denigration, where nothing you do is ever good enough. So what I've been thinking a lot about is this, this idea that you need to feel like what you're doing has value. I think something inherent to imposter syndrome is the idea that whatever it is you're doing doesn't have value. Like it's, you know, you didn't put enough work into it or it's not as perfect as you want it to be or any number of things. And therefore it's, it's not that good. And then people who say it was good or you're like politely like, sure, thank you, but it's not as good as it could be. Right. And I have struggled a lot with that and it's, it's kept me from sticking to a number of, of fields where there was a time when I drew comics all the time. And then I eventually felt like my comics were not as good as I wanted them to be. So I stopped. Same was true with writing fiction and also, I guess, kind of film. And so the YouTube thing is partially like a a melding of a lot of different things that I want to do, but it's also one where the the standard of quality is a little bit lower, I guess. But so as I'm really trying to turn this sort of freelance shit into my career, or at least turn it into a launchpad for a career, I kind of inherently have to start thinking about it in terms of something that has value, you know, treating it like something that's worth the time and effort that I put into it, where the the things that I create are things that I can be proud of and, and should be proud of, right? And so a big part of this is just learning how to take a compliment, you know, where instead of saying, oh, thank you, but then brushing it off. Uh, so for instance, I get a fair number of comments on my YouTube channel. Uh, I don't want to say like it's constant, but um, uh, well, once a month, maybe, you know, where people are saying, wow, I can't believe you only have, I think I'm at 430 subscribers right now because your stuff is so professional and well edited, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's one of those things where it's consistent enough that, it always makes me, I mean, it, it, it used to make me feel uncomfortable because, you know, I disagreed with that. But now, you know, as I'm feeling like I need to take ownership of my work and say that it does have value, you know, I get these these compliments now and it's like, I should take that as a sign that I'm doing something right, you know, that that I'm not wasting my time doing the YouTube thing where... I'm I'm laying the groundwork to be lucky in the way that I want to be, which that's all that being creative for a career is, is laying the groundwork to get lucky, putting in tons of work and throwing things out there and going through a dozen mixed successes or failures until one thing randomly happens to be successful enough that you have any kind of notoriety. And so as I'm thinking this, I then get this writing award that tells me, you know, my my writing award is worth money to this college. It's not even something that's chosen by students. It's chosen by the professors at my, my, my film program. 
And I also won like a pretty good scholarship. And it was just like it was a day of really gratifying and sort of. I don't know. It was like a coincidence, a series of coincidences that really helped gird up my my self-confidence. Of course, that has since fallen quite a bit because of course it has. But that's I mean, that's the cycle of life, right? You start feeling good and then you stop feeling good. So, yeah, getting compliments about my my film and winning that award and getting, you know, best director and uh, best actress. It's it's it, it, it's a sign to me that I I'm on the right path and that I need to be taking this stuff more seriously or um, that I'm not wrong in taking it as seriously as I am. And um, to that effect, so in previous episodes, I've talked a lot about my thoughts of what I'm going to do after I graduate. And, you know, the last few episodes, I've mulled over the fact that I'm really heavily considering grad school. And I've more or less at this point come down to feeling like I don't want to do that. And a big part of the reason is a lot of my hesitance at going to grad school is dealing with the academic aspects, like dealing with the fact that you're essentially being asked to write a very, very lengthily worded articles that no one will ever read. And it's all very much sort of a closed room thing where you're not expressing your ideas in a, in an environment where the average person is expected to have any kind of interest in them at all. And that's like the whole reason that I'm doing the YouTube thing, right? Is to get my ideas out there to try to get other people encouraged to, to check out things that they might not otherwise check out or think about them in ways that they might not have otherwise thought about them. And then there's just the, 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 the academic tradition, right? There's this whole institutional identity that's, that's part of grad school. And uh, I, I, I've, I, throughout the process, there's just like this, this thought in the back of my brain, like, I don't want to deal with that, but uh, you know, I'm going to be up against that my entire college career. If I, if I choose to go down the grad school route and I sort of had this realization that like, if I'm going to be miserable that whole time, like I have very strong opinions about writing and how one should write and like the importance of academic language and everything. And I realized like if I'm going to if I'm going to be frustrated in that environment for the foreseeable future, like if I know for a fact that I'm going to bristle against it forever and that I'm just incompatible with that style of thinking, then why would I put myself in that position? It feels like I would just be miserable the whole time. Or at worst, I would have to subvert some element of my personality and become something else. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean, but there's also the fact that there's a lot of other things that I want to do. Like I, I, uh, you know, I was planning on tying in my, my YouTube stuff into what I, whatever it was I was studying. But the fact is that I, I wouldn't have as, as much time to really explore that space, you know, but besides that, 
there, there, there are books that I want to write. There's all kinds of other things that I want to do. And I just wouldn't have time to ever do them. I would never have time to write this fantasy novel that basically takes up all of my mental capacity whenever I'm not working on other stuff. And I, I want to write that book. The, a big part of the reason why I'm going to Italy is so that I can get research in for that book because it's it's a book based partially on World War One, and this program is studying in part World War One and will involve going to battle sites in Italy. So, you know, I uh, I don't want to put myself in a position where I can't do that. You know. So at this point, I've put the idea of grad school on hold, and I am more or less... My my thought right now is that I'm going to take a year and try to write this book. My feeling about that will probably change once I've gotten back from Italy. We'll just have to see. But right now, that's sort of my plan. And then what I do from there is very much you know, in the air. Right. So I don't know. I've, I've, it's terrifying because part of the reason why I wanted to decide on grad school is that it's a path, right? I know what I'm going to be doing for the next two to six years. Well, I mean, if I'm, you know, if I was going to plan on becoming a a professor, then I know what I'm going to be doing for the next 10 years, if not the rest of my life. And there's a comfort in, in knowing what you're going to do. But I know that this ultimately is going to be a more fulfilling path, albeit the it's the the starving artist path, which is infuriatingly ill-defined and is, again, just sitting in an alley in front of a shady person, rolling the dice and hoping that you get lucky. Uh, and so that's what I'm betting on is getting lucky. But one can feel better about that process if they accept that they're not wasting their time and making the things that they're making. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to feel like, you know, this podcast has value even for the mess that it is and that my show has value and that I'm, I'm not wasting my time. I'm, I'm doing something worthwhile that people could and sometimes do enjoy. And you know, with, with the YouTube stuff, it's a little bit frightening because YouTube as a platform is constantly changing and there's all sorts of rumblings about how it's becoming more corporate. And ugh, that's that's all its own nerve wracking business. I, I don't know. But, you know, I can't behave as though that's already a foregone conclusion. I have to do what I can with what I have at my fingertips right now. Well, I have more to talk about, but first, I'm going to be a selfish asshole and plug some stuff so that you will be encouraged to go give me money. So I'll be back in a second after that. Well, hello. How do you feel about money? I bet you have too much of it. How about you would... How would... 
How would you feel about giving it to me? You can do that at patreon.com slash L-T-A-S. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support me in doing these ridiculous things that I do that have value. For five dollars a month, you get my scripts and notes and unused materials for all of my videos, and ten dollars a month gets your name read aloud in the credits. I don't know about having any, like, podcast-specific things, but if you want them, you should send me an email at transquestioningpodcast at gmail.com. Wow, I've, I've lost the voice, huh? It, it, it continues to change. Speaking of that email, if you have questions or thoughts or feelings that you want to share and perhaps have read on this podcast, send me an email at transquestioningpodcast at gmail.com. It's a good way to... to, to contact me and and add stuff to the show. I would really like to hear from folks about what their life is like as a trans human being. Alright, I'm done shilling. See, that was painless. It was so easy. Go please help me survive on this stupid adventure I'm going on. Okay, back back to the show. So I went to a clothing swap that was thrown by a friend of mine that I haven't talked to in forever. And I was not expecting much to come from it. It was uh, it was something that I was invited to and I accepted it on Facebook and I thought like, eh, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. And then I decided that I would because it, uh, it was something, you know, along the same lines as the uh, trans friendly game night that I talked about in a previous episode where I really need to be making more friends here before my other my roommates leave. So that came around. It was on a Sunday and the buses didn't run and I almost wasn't able to go because I couldn't get a hold of my friend. And, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever. It was probably not going to be a big deal. But I had gotten together a bunch of clothes because I've lost so much weight that almost none of my clothes fit anymore, which is both a really good feeling and a really terrible feeling because clothes are expensive. But I uh, I had this big mountain of clothes I was going to donate. And I was like, yeah, I could take it to this clothing swap. But uh, I found a ride. And so I took all those clothes with me. And my expectation going to this was that maybe a handful of people would take like one or two of my things. And then I would not be able to find anything because I was anticipating that this would be, I mean, in general, my observation has been that a lot of vocal public trans people are trans women. And I don't know, that's my stereotypical thing. And that's not based on any empirical evidence. But I was expecting going to this that it would be mostly trans women looking for trans fe- or feminine clothes, uh, giving up their ma- masculine clothes. And so there would probably not be much for me uh, or people like me. But boy, was I wrong. I went in with a giant laundry bag full of clothes and I dumped them all out and a lot of it got taken, which is really wild. And I filled that fucking laundry bag back up with uh, with, with, with feminine clothes. And that was super cool. But more than that, I made some new friends while I was there. Uh, I reconnected with my friend and I've actually set up a, a, a day 
with them coming up to go over to their house uh, and watch the first season of Twin Peaks, which I'm excited about because I need to rewatch it for my Twin Peaks video series that I'm working on. And so that was a great time. And I got a lot of great clothes that I haven't worn that much because I'm not out publicly. Right. So that's I've worn some of it around the house. There's a skirt that I love that I've worn around the house a lot that uh, has 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 been really exciting. There were so many different types of people there. There was there was a, 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 a there were just so many different kinds of people there with with different identities and different appearances and all kinds of different means of presentation. And everybody was so open and accepting. And I had this realization while I was there that somehow I've gone my entire life as me (laughs) without having a, a big queer friend group. I lived with the gay guy and a lesbian woman for a little while, but they didn't have many other queer friends. So there was not much interaction and it was still very sort of vanilla queer to put it in the most offensive way possible or reductive way. And so somehow like me as a, as a goth teenager and as a, a, a writing student and a film student and all of these other things, like all of my liberal arts life, I've never had this robust friend group and I could tell they, in my time with them, I, I started feeling so much more comfortable with my identity and feeling like, yeah, maybe there are people who would accept me this way. And I realized on the way home that I probably would have come out a lot sooner if I had had these friends. And I think this has been a recurring question in this podcast is what would have helped me come out sooner. Like when I was in high school and I kept thinking that it was about if there was media representation or if there's conversations that were happening and those would definitely help. And I can't say for sure what the degree is like on the pie chart, which things deserve a bigger chunk. But I think an equal, at least part of it would have been having other friends who were queer And so being in that environment, you know, did more for me in a few hours than all all the introspection in the world over the course of, you know, several months. So that was nice and eye opening. And I got all these great clothes out of it. And I've started feeling a lot better about being trans and wanting to step up that process. And so I've more or less decided that once I get this check, I'm going to try to get my uh, HRT stuff set up, which is uh, terrifying. And there's also so many things that so many bills that I have to to build up to. So I'm, I don't know. I'm my, my resolve on that has softened a little bit. I was at a point where I was like hundred percent. I want to get started before July, before I go to Italy, but now I'm not as sure for a number of reasons, but I, you know, I'm still like, uh, if I don't start it now, I'm going to start it in August when I get back. And that's just, you know, I'm excited to get started. And 
that's a big that's a big thing and it's 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 amazing to me looking back how it went from uh, I'll probably do it I don't know to feeling like yeah I'm gonna but oh I don't know when and now I'm just like god if I could start tomorrow I'd fucking do it come on let's go let's get this going and that's sort of yeah I mean it's 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 really helped me in that regard and um, I have my fourth laser uh, appointment this Wednesday, which is exciting. And um, the thing that I've just, <laughs> yeah. So with with that with laser, I know now, like for somebody with hair as thick as mine, that um, either expecting a lot of progress over four sessions was naive. Or I fucked up the process a little bit by shaving sooner than I needed to. I'm not entirely sure what might have happened there, but uh, we'll see, right? Hopefully I didn't fuck it up because I haven't seen a ton of effects. My lower neck is clear in a very big way. And over the last few days or maybe last week, I've noticed that the area of my mustache directly below my nose has gone very pale which is wild. Like the the interesting thing about laser is it the effect is slow. It's very delayed. So if you're like me, you wait a couple of days to shave because shaving immediately just hurts and it sucks. And so you know f- after a few weeks feeling like I'm wasting my money I'm wasting my time. Laser is is just worthless. I'm never going to get rid of this beard or whatever. Then you shave and you look in the mirror and you're like, hold on a second. Has it always been this thin? What's, what's, what's the deal? What's going on with that? So that's a, that's a great feeling. That's a good, it's good. So I have my next appointment and I'm hoping that that's going to be drastically more effective. I feel like my sideburns have thinned out, although I've gone back and looked at older pictures and I can't quite tell. It's tough. I don't know. It's real weird. So, yeah, there's that. Um, And then that's the end of my four-month package. I am not sure what I'm going to do after that. I know I'm going to need more, but, you know, I'm leaving in July, so I might just pay for one session I don't know. We'll see. That's 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 still in the air. We'll see what happens there. But so with this, you know, increased confidence in my identity, there's also come a a, a, a more definite awareness of my place in the world as a trans person. So I have uh, a handful of people who are calling me Sarah and and going by my female pronouns uh, full time, which has been it was it was super weird and sort of off putting at first, but it's gotten really comfortable. It's kind of amazing how quickly you adapt to it. And now I'm distinctly aware of when people call me by my old name and and use my my old pronouns. And it's it's definitely coming to a point of like, I'm going to have to ask everybody to, to, to change things up soon, which is really intimidating, <laughs> intimidating and, and frightening. I don't know. Um, but it's it, it's a sign of progress for sure. 
But the other thing is, the other night I was walking home from class and I I do this fairly frequently. It's sort of my only exercise and it's it's a bit of a walk. It's like 40 minutes, but it's a nice walk. So I realized as I was walking home, like it was dark. If I, if I were presenting full time as a woman, you know, I'd be at risk of catcalling at minimum and potential violence at worst, right? And that was sort of a weird feeling. And I had this sort of flashback to when I was in high school and I always loved walking around town at night. And I had my one of my girlfriends at the time, I said to her, like, you got to walk around at night. It's so nice. And she kept telling me, no, I can't do that. And I keep being like, well, why? Why not? Come on. Quit being so so much a coward or whatever. And, you know, as time has gone on, I've started to appreciate more that the reason why is that I have I had the privilege as as a as a guy to to be able to expect to walk around at night and not be like attacked or molested. And I feel like I'm on the verge of giving up that privilege, which is really sad because that's one of my favorite things walking around at night. And that's something that I'm increasingly paying attention to is the fact that I'm slowly getting rid of a lot of, a lot of the privileges of, of, of being male. And I guess this, this will be my last point is there's this sort of dumb argument that, you know, you have male privilege as a trans woman and you've lived your whole life as a man, whatever. And that's, there's, I'm not entirely dissuaded, you know, thinking about that argument, but here's, and I've probably made this point in the podcast before, but here's where it's different for me is that, well, yes, I have had male privilege most of my life. It is sort of male privilege under duress where there was something deeply wrong with me my entire life that I wasn't able to identify. And so even though I had male privilege, I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't enjoying it. Right. And I, I mean, the whole point of this podcast basically is demonstrating how, even though I had male privilege, like patriarchy was destroying me and continues to have a deeply negative effect on me. But now it's, yeah, I don't know. I'm the ultimate point really is that, you know, in the same way that imposter syndrome is, is universal. I think for trans people, it's universal to feel like, Oh, I'm not really trans. I'm wasting my time. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not trans enough, that whole thing. And that's, you know, that's, that's universal too. It, I think it's a sign that that's bullshit, that you're presented with a lifestyle where you make yourself vastly more visible uh, and subject to verbal and physical abuse at a moment's notice where, you know, the worst thing that you can be under a patriarchy is a man who has given up his manhood, which is a deeply fraught way of putting it, of course. But it's it's very telling when you are somebody who's presented with that and you still want to go through with it. I don't think, 
you know, there's the whole autogynophilia thing and just this general like, you know, oh, it's a it's a it's a it's a kink. It's a sexual deviant thing. Nobody would really do that. Just, you know, because because the sexual element, even if it's there, is only there for a little bit. You know, there are very, very, very few people who make a tremendous choice for their life that has a, that is primarily for a sexual thing that lasts all of the time. And I mean, there are piercings and stuff, but you know what I mean? It, it, it's just ridiculous that it would be, you know, I'm making this choice because I find it sexually arousing. And now I get to go into women's bathrooms and be like, you know, given the stink eye by everybody in there and potentially, you know, yelled at or had the police called on me. And now I get to walk down the streets and get cat called by men and, you know, have to deal with people misgendering me in public and, you know, the embarrassment of learning how to dress yourself in a way that isn't embarrassing and just on and on and on and on. Not to mention, you know, healthcare and all of these horrible things, all of the many ways that our current, you know, political climate is wanting to destroy trans people. There's, there's no way that anybody makes that choice and is not, you know, not trans enough. If you're, if you're, if you're like me and you're faced with that reality and, you know, I'm of the mind that it's not in spite of that reality, but because of it that I want to transition. Because if I were to give in to the fear that, you know, I face violence as the, the more I make myself a woman, you know, that would mean that I'm giving up this piece of my identity to a world that wants me to cease to exist. I'm making, I'm, I'm essentially making myself cease to exist for, for their, to their benefit. So I, I, I partially choose this path. You know, I, I am, I am very much a coward in my heart of hearts, but I make this choice anyway, because it is one of the only meaningful forms of resistance that I have available to me. And that resistance is to to do what makes me happy, that will give me a reason to live and help undergird my attempts at becoming a functional adult. So, yeah, take that, patriarchy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'll just say once more, if you like what I do and want to support me, go to patreon.com slash LTAS and throw some money my way. If you have it, just a dollar a month would help tremendously. If you have questions or thoughts or other like things that you want to add or criticisms you want to throw my way, send me an email at transquestioningpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at HMSNoFun or at TransQPodcast. Uh, the cover art was by Emily Bumgarner. The music is by Insane in the Rain. All of the links are in the description. Thank you for listening as always, and I will see you again in the near-ish future.